I'm Johanna Nusseth. I'm Senior Vice President for Strategic Planning here, and I head up our work on global food security. Um, we're really pleased to have you here. We're pleased to have a number of special guests, and we're pleased to have a chance to talk with you about a new report that we've uh, put out just in the past couple of days. It's looking at the role of GM technology in food security with a particular focus on East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. So I want to say a few words about the report and about um, sort of our process, but first I want to recognize a couple of individuals and uh, particular bits of information. First thing I, I have to say is that I want to point you to Jim Dunton, who's way in the back, who's never ever recognized or noticed, but Jim has headed up our publications team for almost 20 years, and he's read every publication we put out, and he almost um, dropped to the floor when I told him we have a very special guest who's coming from Uganda. Can we please get this report done in two weeks? And um, so here it is. So Jim, thank you. I know that you never, you never get any airtime, but we just really appreciate all that you do because our publications are such an important part of what we do at CSIS to share ideas and research. So thank you. Um, yes. So I, I want to just give you a little bit of background about this project, and then the, the agenda for today is that Kristen Wedding, who's the primary author on the report, uh, is going to walk through our findings and observations from our work. Jennifer Cook is going to follow up. Um, Jennifer leads our Africa program, and she's going to give a bit of a political forecast of adoption in terms of where GM products are with each of these countries and what some of the dynamics are within the region. And then um, for the bulk of our discussion, we're really, really honored to have Dr. Tushimawewe from uh, Uganda. He's a banana specialist and um, is going to talk about Uganda's particular path uh, on GM technology and research and communication, which is a very, it's just a really interesting story and we're just so happy that you could be here. And he's going to be complimented by Dr. John McMurdy, who heads up USAID's work in this area. Um, USAID has been supporting uh, regulatory work, supporting research, supporting scientific capacity on biotechnology for quite some time. And John spearheads that within USAID now, but he's also complimented with a lot of people from other agencies. The Department of State has been very engaged on this uh, set of activities in this uh, issue area. USDA is, of course, very engaged. And we've got all the research uh, universities throughout the U.S. who also serve as partners, as well as the private sector in the U.S. So it's just a very dynamic set of partnerships, and we're really delighted to be able to talk about it today. Um, to give you some background on how we came to this particular set of countries and set of issues, um, we actually are part of a set of projects that's funded by the Templeton, John Templeton Foundation. Um, Patrick Mitten is with us from the foundation in the back, and so he's kind of stewarding these 14 research efforts, and Carl Prey is also with us, who's doing another one. Um, and really, the question the foundation put out was sort of a big picture, how can science change lives question, which is, can GM technology help feed the world? And from that, we said, well, we've been doing a lot of work on research and technology, scientific partnerships. We've also, we had done uh, a baseline research piece on the GM debate in Kenya, South Africa, and, Malawi, and Zambia. Um, we did that, and it was published in 2010, and we took that on because as food security was starting to become much more of an issue and more of a um, focus area with the U.S., we felt that it was going to be very quick that U.S. congressmen and, and policymakers would turn to GM technology as an option. And we wanted to understand what is the lay of the land, what does public opinion really look like 
and sort of what's the scientific um, debate and discussion and research look like in key countries. Um, we come to this question in as neutral a way, I hope, as possible. We've tried to really look at our three countries over the past 18 months. We've uh, done research trips. We've done um, many, many dozen interviews with scientists, with um, journalists, with policymakers, with smallholder farmers in, in rural communities to say, what, what is what is this technology look like for you? What is where is the science? Where are all of the products, uh, and when might they come out? And who might adopt them? And what might that look like? And the results are really contained in this report, where we try to try to really neutrally assess: it, Does this technology have a role, and is it likely to be picked up by smallholder farmers? And we did focus on food crops. And I think um, it is. It sounds like a very niche topic. Uh, it sounds like a very narrow focus. But what we discovered as we got into it is, is actually quite large because it touches on every aspect of agricultural development, from research to science capacity to extension to seed systems to finance and credit, um, and ultimately. All of those systems need to work for any kind of new technology to take hold. As you all know, you know less than a third of, of land in sub-Saharan Africa is planted to hybrid crops. So the idea that you need to invest in all of the different systems to make any kind of crop or Im improved crop, improved technology crop, is a very important one that we, we wanted to try to emphasize. But when I, 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 I kind of asked myself throughout the course of all these discussions and all these meetings and all these tr trips, why are we looking at this? Is this really even relevant? Because there is so much to do. There's so much to do on agriculture in, in every country. And, uh, and I think we all came away, as Jennifer and Kristen and Richard and others of us um, spoke with people, there are sort of three big picture issues that we felt made it really relevant for us to be looking at this technology. One is that this is sort of the forefront of, of ag. This isn't actually the, the cutting edge forefront of ag technology. That's nanotechnology. But this is one of the important parts of science. And scientists in every country want to be at the cutting edge of science. And, it's, and, and they want to have access to be doing work in areas that are going to make a difference. So that's one important reason to look at it. A second reason is that these are very long lead times. To stand up a regulatory system to get products um, honed for a particular environment or climate takes up to 10 to 15 years. So a country can't just say, oh my gosh, we had a massive drought this year. We really need this new thing. Um, it's going to take time. So that long lead time means it's important to be looking at it uh, today. And the third, I think, probably most overwhelming uh, reason why we felt that this is an important issue was that th there is a type of tool that GM technology can bring that other conventional breeding can't bring. And I, and I think all of us, as we looked at the situation, felt that um, the message that GM technology should be for increased productivity or for all kinds of different things is, is a tough sell because you can raise productivity in a lot of different ways. But there are pests, there are diseases, there are climate issues and drought conditions that, that really can't be tackled with conventional breeding. And for that reason in particular, we felt like it was really worth looking at this particular set of questions and really spending some time analyzing it. So with that, I want to ask Kristen to give an overview of the, the project and findings and observation, and um, then we'll go from there. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Johanna, and I'm delighted to see you all here today. I also want to start out by thanking a couple of people, um, Anna Applefield and our food security work, Richard Downey from our Africa program and Farhat Tahir from Africa program um, 
really contributed greatly to the project, um, both conducting field research and also with writing the report. This was really a very large collaborative effort. Um, uh, so I, as Johanna said, I'm just going to run through a couple of the key findings um, and then Jennifer will jump into what this means. I think one of the biggest takeaways is, you know, looking at the vast food security challenges in these countries is that um, really one of the essential backgrounds, uh, backbones is investing in ag uh, delivery systems. You know, regardless of, of if the countries adopt GMOs, there are still a number of basic technologies that need to be adopted by smallholder farmers in, in, in order for any technology to really be uh, live up to its full potential. We, we noticed um, you know, that the extension systems were very weak and the seed industry uh, had a lot of deficiencies as well. Some of those barriers would need to be overcome sort of regardless of if a country will end up moving forward with GMOs. Um, and see, in assessing the debate between the three countries, we definitely noticed that it took place within the local context, but was strongly influenced both with domestic governments, foreign governments, philanthropic groups, and NGO efforts. So much of the debate that was taking place at the local level um, mirrored a lot of the debate at the global level, but also you could see how the domestic political structures really shaped it. Um, the the message that came across most clearly is, as Joanna mentioned, um, that the talking about GM crops as a solution to potential problems really was a way to talk about the broader national food security debate at sort of a larger level that people could understand. So I think that's how the public becomes more involved in some of the GM aspects. Finally, I think one of the big pushing points is that political will is really going to be making the big difference on countries' choices whether to move forward with these technologies or not. The domestic political structures are, are really shaping how the regulatory system is set up and how scientific re research is conducted, and that will have sort of the long-term effects on commercialization and adaptation. As Johanna mentioned, um, one of the things we focused on was regulatory capacity. Um, a lot of investment has been done in these countries. Probably Kenya's the, been involved the longest um, and has a pretty deep bureaucracy set up and a pretty um, sophisticated regulatory system. Uh, Uganda is just in the final stages of passing its biosafety laws and then um, Tanzania is still sort of developing and probably is the most strict of the three countries. Um, we also looked at scientific capacity in each of the three countries, and in thinking about this, we wanted to get a sense, we spoke with the scientists in all of the, the countries and really found that they're deeply committed to these issues and very, have been involved for a very long time and are driven by solving the food security issues in their countries. And this really highlights the need to develop crops that, per, that are pertinent to local issues and that address those problems. But most importantly, that this work is being done and that the scientists can be such great communicators to the broader public and the region um, on what types of technologies they're working on that can improve their country's food security situation. Um, one of the recommendations that came out of this report was that uh, they, they can take a really big lead both in communicating with the public but also the importance of training journalists and rewarding them for uh, 
good scientific communication. The, the focus of the study really in, in the end was to look at the potential impact of GM studies, uh, GM crops on smallholder farmers. And in talking with a lot of the smallholders in the country, we, we realized that this is sort of a largely ignored population when it terms to what their opinions are on it. Many of the farmers we spoke to um, had maybe heard of GM, had heard that it might make you infertile. I mean, they just had heard a few sound bites of it. Um, but quite honestly, it's a product that's not available, and if it was, they probably wouldn't have access to it. So in the end, it was a very abstract technology to them. Um, it became, after speaking, spending the day in a, with a group in Kenya, and talking about their priorities, the bottom line was sort of like, well, we'll use them if the government says they're safe and we can access them, but, you know, I'd really like some solar lights so I can harvest later in the evening, or a plow. So, I, you know, I think there's a lot of things that need to be tackled along this path. Um, but the bottom line really is that farmers need good products and need access to them. Finally, uh, we looked at these three countries as part of their regional dynamics um, and really have come away with the, the feeling that national policies are really going to strongly impact what happens in the region. Um, as if one of these countries moves forward to, towards commercialization, and I think we're, as we're looking at it, it looks like Uganda might head out first, it's likely that the other countries will try to keep up. I mean, they're very inter interconnected. I think Jennifer will talk a little bit more about this, but um, it's going to be hard to sort of keep it in the bottle when neighboring countries see, neighboring farmers see that their farmers have access to these technologies. Um, it's likely to spur on sort of that effect. One of the other big concerns uh, that we came across is that there is really a, a real tangible fear toward that commercialization of these crops is going to have negative trade impacts. Um, and we commissioned a study by John Komen and David Wafula that largely found this to be untrue in the sense that a lot of the crops that are being developed right now for food security crops are largely traded at the regional level and not necessarily exports to Europe. So there needs to be a focus on how to communicate that to farmers and really how to consider um, what crops they're, they're developing. Just to touch briefly on the high-level points of the far forecast for adoption, um, one of the biggest things is that ultimately consumer and farmer demand is really going to drive is is really going to drive the need for development of these crops, but right now there needs to be almost someone to push push those crops out. So that's going to probably be the government and the private sector. And without without this pull from local farmers, it it's hard to know how the government's going to prioritize that in a lot of other competing political um, problems that it's facing uh, without hearing a vocal call for, for these crops. Either way, uh, adoption is going to end up being sort of a, a longer process, and it's usually comes with fits and starts as opposition increases and decreases. And as I mentioned, it'll likely spread through the region. Um, Finally, I think just some sort of top-line highlights on the, on the adoption is that Kenya really has sort of led the way on developing a regulatory system and, and 
uh, scientific capacity, but it really lacks sort of a clear champion within the government. Um, just recently, uh, well, I guess maybe last November, the, they have a regulatory system up and running, but then they decided to ban GM imports and GM crops based on the advice of the health minister, who isn't actually part of their regulatory system. So in effect, they have a biosafety system, but didn't necessarily use it to regulate, uh, regulate GMOs. Um, so there really will, given the democratic nature of the country, there really needs to be clear political champions within the country. Tanzania, we found, um, had really a strong, robust scientific community who uh, was starting to feel a little frustrated with the work that they are doing on GM. Um, and it's a, it's a little bit of an uphill battle. There's much more public antipathy towards, towards the technology and um, more distrust of the private sector. So I think in that sense, um, it's a different public opinion battle to overcome. And otherwise, and they're also recipients of a lot of agricultural development dollars right now. So I think that the Tanzanian government's also facing a lot of pressures to um, adopt some of these higher level technologies. Finally, um, in Uganda, we see that it seems that there's been a quick, steady, incremental approach towards both their regulatory system and their uh, the science to go along with it. So it's sort of tracked together, and they the government has been able to communicate a message that's uniformly positive. Um, and I think this also goes to the political structure of Uganda, that a lot of talking to people, the message was sort of that everyone's reading from the same script. Um, they all had a clear vision of GMOs being a tool to improve food security. Um, but just recently, as they're nearing the passage of their biosafety bill, we're starting to see an increase in opposition. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out. And then I just um, included a couple additional resources that we've published, as I mentioned, the Trade and Tribulations paper. And then we have a forthcoming paper by Judy Chambers from IFPRI with an in-depth look at the uh, regulatory systems. So thank you. I'll turn it over to Jennifer now to do an in-depth look. Great. Thanks so much, uh, Kristen and, and Johanna, and to you all for being here. I'm going to keep it fairly short because I think there's a fair amount of overlap between the presentations, and we want to get to our, our star turn and our, our guest today. Um, so I thought I'd just say a little bit about some of the dilemmas and challenges um, that we found as these countries are moving forward on exploring GM crop technologies as a means to boost uh, the productivity of smallholder farmers, which was really our focus in this. The things that have slowed the process uh, and some of the things in my mind that uh, will eventually drive the process forward. The first issue, and as, as Kristen said, is that there is, is really very little sign of a demand pull um, from the end user, which is the smallholder farmer. Obviously, smallholder farmer, it's not a monolithic group. It's very hard to say, well, the farmers say this or, or that. But that actually doesn't stop a lot of people for, from speaking for the farmer. So I think there's no, no one opinion on the matter. But one does get the impression that, um, as of now, that the idea of GM is fairly abstract for the average um, rural farmer. Some of the non-governmental groups we talked to really spoke about the difficulty of explaining the technology in terms that a, that a rural farmer um, can understand. I have trouble with the concept myself at times. Um, 
one group that took us and introduced us to a group of farmers um, told us just please don't mention GM. It's just still tainted and it's it's controversial. And this was this was a group that was actually fairly uh, fairly uh, a proponent of the technology. Um, opponents of the technology told us with no doubt in their mind that that farmers are fearful that this will squeeze out traditional varieties. Uh, that they are very uh, wedded to their local local varieties. They don't want to lose those, um, and they're they're very fearful of uh, becoming entirely reliant on large corporate seed companies, um, unscrupulous uh, Western commercial interests. Proponents, on the other hand, told us that um, if, if farmers see a solution uh, that minimizes risks from pests and disease, uh, that lowers the need for costly inputs. <coughs> And that increases productivity, uh, they'll they'll probably very quickly overcome any skepticism. So I think one of the big challenges is I'm sorry I'm losing my voice. One of the big challenges is actually trying to gauge the opinion of smallholder farmers. Um, a lot depends on how the technology is explained to them, um, how the questions are framed, and frankly, who's interpreting the results in the end. So you actually get a very polarized view of, of uh, depending on, on who's doing the talking and the interpreting of what, what's, what small farmers uh, that abstract question would be. Thank you so much. One thing that, though, that did seem clear is that, <coughs> as Johanna and Christian both said, is that GM technologies are not really a priority for the smallholder farmer even if the issues that they're intended uh, to address are. Um, a second dilemma, uh, in the absence of this strong demand pull from the smallholder and the end user, the great burden of pushing the process in research and development, in public communication, in legislative and regulatory frameworks, um, in dissemination and training, in commercialization and so forth, in regional harmonization, all falls on the public sector and to some extent on the scientific community as well. But the big quis question then becomes whether the government leadership uh, can generate and sustain the political will and momentum on GM to see it through these various processes, which, are, which, are, which require a good deal of heft, a good deal of outreach across the government to the public. And these are governments that have, are strapped with many other priorities within agriculture itself, but then on a much broader range of things. And we saw Kenya, which had a surge on, on GM and a lot of excitement in the legislature, it had Rilo Dinga and Ruto behind it, um, kind of then entered into a, uh, an election year and kind of, you know, you see that kind of uh, collapse after a while. So the, these, are, these are countries that are, are, are facing many priorities and, and, not a, and GM, Frankly, in the overall scheme of things, though it may be important for some and it may be seen as a big opportunity, is not the big political priority. Uh, particularly when there are varying degrees of public resistance and, 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 and that came up in Tanzania, uh, and an uncertain take up, uptake by the eventual uh, user. So what does help sus drive a sustained effort? First, and I think, um, again, it's been mentioned, is an empowered, articulate scientific community that has the tools um, to communicate with policymakers and to communi communicate um, with, with the broader public. In Tanzania, a lot of the scientists there told us they, they were frustrated, they wanted to be at that cutting edge, but they acknowledged we're not actually very good communicators and we don't 
we don't really, it, it's, we, we don't have a whole lot of experience in, in explaining complex scientific issues and issues of risk and how do you measure risk and how do you b balance risk um, to the public or to policymakers. So that was an acknowledgement there. Um, in, in Uganda, uh, uh, by contrast, there actually has been a very strong effort to have this kind of consistent, ongoing dialogue between the public, between farmers, policymakers, and the scientific community, where, where the kind of issues that come up from, from the public citizens, you know, does it make me infertile, um, does it, uh, you know, all those kind of things that oftentimes get laughed off and, and, and dismissed as, as foolish are taken seriously and answered in kind of a serious, um, serious uh, civil way. Um, so building kind of a trust and, and res mutual respect on that. Champions within government, as I said, um, it, it can be a powerful driver, but it's not necessarily reliable, as we saw in the Kenyan case. Champions, if they're, if they're big and influential, they probably have many things on their mind and their attention can turn. Um, so in that, in that way, you need kind of a bureaucracy and a regulatory, uh, institutional uh, regulatory framework that is kind of working on the same page, is working towards outcomes rather than simply process, that there's been a consultative process not only with the public and, and the scientific community, but within government so that people are talking on the same page and there's some consensus on that. In Tanzania, we, we were told, you know, there are, uh, even within ministries, there's a debate between the minister and the deputy, between one ministry and the other. Uh, between one regulator and the other. So there's not a lot of consensus there, and there's a lot of turf and, and authority issue, uh, lines of authority that are not always clear. <coughs> I'm really sorry about my voice. I don't know what's happened here. Um, so I'll try to keep it short. Uh, another, another thing that may, will drive it forward is kind of the go and see missions that we've seen, and that has been an inspiration, I think, to scientists to farmers, to legislators, and to policymakers as they're trying to, to decide. And, and actually seeing something that's concrete, going to South Africa and talking to farmers there, going to Burkina Faso and talking to the policymakers and the farmers about how that process happened um, has been uh, extremely important. Uh, and I think you know, that's, that's something, um, getting the media involved in that as well, I think is extremely important. Um, a third dilemma is that as, uh, as these processes, and I think, Christian, you mentioned it, as they come to fruition and the issue becomes less abstract, you're likely to see more resistance grow. And you've seen this in South Africa, where there's a big, big, uh, you know, uh, very elaborate scientific uh, infrastructure, but there's still a lot of resistance and the kind of debates that, here, that go on here in Washington and so forth. Um, a couple of things uh, kind of going forward, though, that, I mean, I've given you some of the dilemmas of this. First, I think there is likely to be a breakthrough. I think, you know, Uganda is a very likely candidate for getting something on the market. I think they projected, uh, or to the commercialization stage, um, 2015, 2016, perhaps. And I think once, once you begin to see these pockets of places that have crossed that barrier, there will remain kind of the very difficult challenge of disseminating it to farmers, get the uptake and so forth. But I think that brings it from the realm of the abstract into the concrete and you get a very powerful demonstration effect that way. 
I think new markets, so much is being kind of dictated and the perceptions driven by what happens in Europe and European markets. There are new markets opening up in the rest of the world, in China, India, where other GM producers, and I think that will kind of, um, as Africa turns eastward perhaps, that may uh, lower some of the, the perceptions of risk and um, uh, <coughs> around that. I'm going to really stop talking any moment. Finally, the regional dynamics. Again, if one of these countries moves towards GM, right now at the regional level, there's not a lot of discussion about how policies will be harmonized. You, we, the East African com uh, community doesn't really have this as an issue within its headquarters. That was suggested. Um, a, a lot of this, though, I think will depend on whether a Uganda or a Kenya uh, moves forward with the technology, will likely draw along uh, the region as well. There may be issues on that. I think Tanzania, um, uh, Tanzania is still very much, one gets the sense, but um, operating on the, on the precautionary principle. People talk about something of a two-track East Africa community uh, with Kenya, Uganda, um, and Rwanda kind of, uh, kind of on the more, uh, moving ahead more quickly on integration, and Burundi and Tanzania kind of uh, struggling along. Um, but I think, <coughs> I think ultimately uh, it may take some time, but that regional dynamic will push the technologies forward across the region. Just one last point on, on, on U.S. engagement. The U.S. does not want to be in a position of really pushing this technology. I think it can add fuel to some of the debates that are happening within the country that are running their course. There's, in those countries that have taken it up, like Uganda, the, you might, the U.S. can be focused and present and talking. In others, I think it could be very counterproductive. And there are so many other issues um, to be addressed to, 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 to increase agricultural productivity and to help set the stage for the eventual uptake of GMOs, where the U.S. can be focusing, that, mire it, that get it less mired in those controversies. Again, I, I'll stop there <laughs> and uh, turn to our next speaker. I'm looking forward to the discussion. And uh, thanks again, Joanna, for having me. Okay, well, uh, let me just um, mention one other person who's my nice husband, Chris, here, who pointed out to me that for this project I was away one out of 12 work days over the past year, leaving him stranded with our two young sons. So he was very kind and patient to do that. Um, we're going to make sure to leave ample time for Q&A at the end. Uh, but I want to, before we really turn to that, to actually get sort of some stage setting comments from John. And then Dr. Tush has um, a really wonderful and quite detailed presentation to really talk through where Uganda is. So I think we'll save that for when John finishes so we can launch into a very serious set of uh, questions and answers. And you can speak from there or from the podium, whichever you'd like. Um, actually, I will stay here okay. if that's okay. Yep. This, this guy's on. You guys hear me? Yo, that's on. Um, okay, well, well first, thanks uh, CSIS for, for the invitation. Uh, <laughs> nice for me to be here in front of all of you. And, and thanks for, for Tush for making the, the stopover on your way back to uh, back to Uganda. It's, it's great to, to see you here in this setting versus our, our normal setting. Um, I, I figured I'd talk a little bit about our, our rationale um, for USAID on investing in, in biotechnology. And, and I think it hits on a lot of the points that, uh, that Jennifer just finished with, um, in that 
there's a lot of need out there. There's certainly um, more need than we, as just one, one donor, can possibly fill. And, and, and there's obviously a finite amount of resources. But I think it's, it's the motivation on we really limit our investments in biotechnology to those, those products, those approaches that, that really have a high reward, that, that there's a need. Uh, it's a challenge that we haven't been able to solve through an alternative method, and one where we can bring some, some specific advantages through our um, long history of exposure to, to this technology. So we supported um, biotech, and I'll, I'll use biotech in this context just to mean transgenics. Uh, for about 20 years now at USAID, starting with some, some very early work by Michigan State University uh, in places like South Africa, uh, Egypt, and, and a few other countries. So we have, we have quite, a, quite a history of, of doing this, and our approach has always been to um, look for countries who have, who have come and expressed a, a need and an interest to us. I think there, there's, uh, there's this perception a lot that we're, we're forcing a lot of these, uh, these technologies, these R&D projects, uh, this policy engagement on countries when, in fact, we're actually responding to a lot of requests from countries who, who are interested. Um, this is evidence in, in the places where we work. We're very active in places like Kenya, like Uganda, like um, Malawi, where there's the government's very interested. They have problems they want to solve, and they've come to us to, to try and help uh, look for some alternative solutions, and, and indicative of why we don't work certain places where there's not as much of an interest, places like Zambia, places like Cambodia. So we really limit ourselves to where there is that, that need and that interest from the government. Um, our investment in, in biotech, it's about maybe uh, between 1 and 2 percent uh, of the Feed the Future initiative. Um, probably most people are familiar with uh, the uh, agricultural initiative at USAID. So it is very indicative that, it's, that we're only using it to focus on sort of these big challenges. And there's a lot of other activities going on out there. It's not necessarily how it's always uh, represented in, in the media, that, that USAID and Feed the Future is, is all biotech. It's really actually quite a small um, but important part of our portfolio. And we're, of course, only one of a handful of donors in this space. Um, pretty much us, the Gates Foundation, Diffid a bit, Rockefeller a bit, Howard Buffett a bit, CETA a bit. That's pretty much the list right there. So there's really not a lot of players. And you know, there's a very finite amount of things you can do. So it really affects our um, ability to, to make good choices on, on where we work. Um, so just a, a couple of comments. On the R&D side, um, we, we try and look for investments and opportunities where either the private sector hasn't had a willingness to engage because there's not a market, or we, we look to really kind of buy down some of that risk, focus on these high reward, um, high potential technologies. So uh, that, that can cover the gamut, the, the gamut of things that are you know, further upstream, for example, we support a, a number of uh, new technologies using RNAi interference uh, as an approach to address several diseases. It's, it's much more upstream research, but it's that real high reward type projects that uh, we can address things like aflatoxin, address things like stem rust, where there have been minimal, if any, successes in, in crop breeding um, for specific strains of stem rust and specifically for aflatoxin. Um, we, we, we look at a lot more that are um, kind of more medium to, to downstream type efforts. So um, you've probably heard a, a good bit in the news about the uh, insect resistant eggplant technology in India. This is, I don't know if you have seen that in the news, but um, actually the way that's presented in the news, a lot of, a lot of, um, 
a lot of times is that it's a, a wholly Monsanto private sector led project that's you know that's being forced upon the, the, the Indian populace and it's not going to be an affordable solution. Uh, unfortunately, the, the part that gets completely lost in that discussion is that there's a huge public sector side of that, um, taking that uh, insect resistant trait, putting it in open pollinated varieties of eggplant, making it available exactly the same way as any other variety of eggplant is. So it's uh, just a bit of a, a mischaracterization. But we, we look for opportunities like that, um, where it's, there hasn't been a, a solution um, through an alternative technology to deal with um, some of the insecticide use in eggplant, so we look at a, at a biotech approach. Um, so maybe I'll skip ahead. In addition to our R&D type investments, I think it's, we all know in this room that it's important to have um, a regulatory system in order to actually get some benefit for these investments. You could obviously spend you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars on technology development and it will never get out the door. If you don't have a system that is um, somewhat grounded in science and, and somewhat um, available and and uh, can be met by the public sector. I think that's one of the, the, the things that we see a lot of times is that the only one who can meet some of the, the barriers that have been set forth by these more restrictive regulatory structures is they can't, can't be met by the, their own institutions. So that's something we try and encourage um, governments to be, be cognizant of that to, to at least when they're developing the regulations to consider their own, their own R&D institutions who are often the ones who might have the only technology in the pipeline in that country. So they're basically working at cross-purposes by restricting um, access to that. 